Thursday 6, question and answer 19. Now, Brother Togert's mentioned that I will be completing a series of sermons in connection with the sacraments. And while this uh, Lord's Day is actually in a different section of the Heidelberg Catechism than the Lord's Day is on the sacraments, nevertheless, there is a connection, and that connection is through the theme of covenant. That's doesn't come up so clearly in the words of the the question and answer that we're about to read, but that will be the, the focus of our sermon this afternoon as we look at how the gospel was revealed first in, in paradise and then all the way through the Bible, uh, through the covenants that God established in history with his people, including the new covenant that he has established with his church in Christ. So we'll read from Lord's Day 6, question 19, uh, which asks the question, from where do you know this, that is, who our mediator is? And the answer is, from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he had it fulfilled through his only Son. Well, we'll now sing uh, from a hymn, which often is sung around Christmas time, but the first line is, Come thou long expected Jesus. And this, I've chosen this hymn because that alludes to the idea that when Jesus came to this earth at Christmas, he was expected because he was the Messiah promised all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. So we'll sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.
And now I invite you to turn with me in God's word to two scripture passages, first from Galatians, the letter of Paul to the Galatians, and then from his letter to the Ephesians. So first, Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Here we read the word of God through the Apostle Paul as follows. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or cancels it or adds to it once it has been ratified or set in place. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, that is, after God established his covenant with Abraham at Mount Sinai, 430 years afterward at Mount Sinai, the law does not cancel or annul a covenant previously ratified or set in place by God so as to make the promises void or empty. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, that is before the gospel of Christ came, or the fulfillment of the gospel of Christ, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So far from the letter of Paul to the Galatians, now we'll turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, from verse 11 through 22. Here the Apostle Paul writes to the the Gentiles in the church in Ephesus, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time 
separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the words uh, from the passage in Ephesians that we just read that we'll focus on, in a sense, in the sermon, at least the theme that those words suggest, is is verse 12. Um, where the Apostle Paul says to the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time, that is before Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers, and here's the theme, to the covenants of promise. The theme of the sermon is the covenants of promise and the Christ of the covenants. Beloved in Jesus Christ, what do you think? Is the Bible one book or many books? Think about that. Is the Bible one book or is it a whole bunch of books gathered together? Maybe this evening around the supper table you can split up into two teams and you can have a debate about this. One team can argue that the Bible is one book and come up with the best reasons for that argument, and the other team can argue that the Bible is actually 66 books, and you can argue for that. But at the end of the day, I think most, if not all of us, would have to agree that in one sense the Bible is one book, and in another sense it's many books, 66 of them. Between the two covers of our Bibles, then, we find both unity, oneness, and diversity, manyness. And there's not a contradiction. The Bible's oneness doesn't cancel out the Bible's manyness. It's not either or, but it's both and. And neither does the Bible's oneness mean that there is no development in the clarity of revelation from the beginning of the Bible to the end. While there's only one gospel, one Savior, and one way of salvation, this is revealed with greater clarity in the books of the New Testament than in the Old Testament books. 
And all this is also reflected in how God's word presents us with its theme of covenant. On the one hand, the Bible as a whole testifies to one overarching and even eternal covenant of grace. From Genesis 3, verse 15 to Revelation 22. One covenant of grace rooted in God's election of a people for himself in Christ. That's the overall message of salvation through Christ that the Bible as a whole reveals and proclaims to us. That though all humanity in Adam have sinned and come under condemnation, yet God has provided a way of salvation in a second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that way of salvation is held out to us in the form of a gracious covenant an oath-bound promise, also signed and sealed by baptism and Lord's Supper to households, to believers and their children. So that's the oneness of the Bible's message. On the other hand, if we read the Scriptures with attention to the progressive unfolding of God's plan of salvation, we find that one of the key ways God did this in the Old Testament was through a series of several distinct but interrelated, connected covenants, plural, which he then brought to climactic fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we read about in the New Testament. This theme of the diversity of God's covenants, together with their united testimony to the one gospel of Jesus Christ, God's eternal covenant of grace, will be the theme of the preaching this afternoon an illustration of the doctrine that's summarized in question and answer 19 of Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, that question and answer says that Christ, the mediator, we know him from the Holy Gospel which God first revealed in paradise and later had proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and finally fulfilled through his only Son. So the theme for the sermon, based on words found in Ephesians 2, verse 12, is this, the covenants of promise and the Christ of the covenants. And we'll consider together, first, the covenants of promise, and then, secondly, the covenant of fulfillment. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul addresses the Gentile believers of the church in Ephesus, And he exhorts them to remember where they once were in relation to God in the way of salvation in Christ. He calls them to to remember their former distance from God and his people. And he calls them to remember this so that they may appreciate more deeply the mercy and grace of God in bringing them near through the fulfillment of his promises to the Jews. This might be comparable to to us being called to remember that we did not always, our our forefathers did not always have the gospel. If If your ancestry is Dutch, your ancestry is pagan if you go back far enough. Well, so we must remember that that's where we came from so that we may understand the grace of God and bringing us into his covenant in Christ. 
And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, remember that you Gentiles were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice the stark contrast that the Apostle highlights between the time before Christ and after Christ. That is, before Christ came into the world and after Christ, now that Christ has come into the world. This contrast is between a time of promise and a time of fulfillment. The time of promise, which we read about in the books of the Old Testament, it included a series of special covenants that God made with a select group of people at, very, at several key moments in history. And these Old Testament covenants, they were designed by God as patterns which pointed forward to and prefigured, that is pictured, the covenant which he reveals in the New Testament in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2 verse 12, the Apostle Paul refers to these Old Testament covenants, therefore, as the covenants of promise. And he does so in distinction from the implied covenant of fulfillment in Christ. He considers these Old Testament covenants as several distinct covenants bearing one united testimony to the promise of the gospel. And so that's what we will do as we unpack this this afternoon. First, we'll consider the diverse forms of Old Testament covenants, and then we'll move to their united message before we come to the fulfillment. They are many, yet one. In the first place, they're multiple and they're diverse. The Apostle Paul highlights this diversity with respect to God's covenants with Abraham and with Israel in his discussion of law and gospel in Galatians chapter 3. That was one of the passages that we read before the sermon. And there the Apostle Paul, he says First, that God had made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, which included the promise that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. That comes in Genesis chapter 15. And then, says Paul, 430 years later, and this would be in, especially in the book of Exodus, beginning at Exodus 20, at Mount Sinai, God had made another covenant with the nation of Israel. In this covenant, it didn't replace or cancel out the previous covenant with Abraham, but it added on to it. So in other words, the Israelites were under, at that stage, when it came to Sinai, two covenants. As descendants of Abram, according to the promise, the Israelites were under the first covenant made with Abraham. And as a nation redeemed from slavery in Egypt, they were under the second covenant, the Sinai covenant, the law covenant. And this law covenant had a distinctive role to play in God's unfolding plan of redemption. So Paul writes in Galatians 3, the law, the covenant of the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
That is, we are no longer under the old covenant. The point we want to recognize here is that Paul makes a clear distinction between these two covenants, while at the same time he highlights their united testimony to the one gospel. The first covenant highlights the promise of the gospel. The second covenant highlights our sinfulness and therefore our desperate need for that gospel that is promised. And so these two covenants, they serve the same ultimate goal in distinct and yet connected ways. Much like any two books of the Bible, for example, the Gospels of Matthew and John, any two books of the Bible, they, they bear witness to one ultimate message, and yet they're not identical. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John are, are, are unique with respect to each other, but they speak of the same Christ. And so it is with these two Old Testament covenants. And not only these two, but the others as well. So what are these other covenants in the Old Testament? Well, the first time that we come across something in the Bible that is called a covenant is in the story of Noah. With Noah and his offspring, God makes what we might call a covenant of preservation. In fact, the text says that God made this covenant with every living creature on the earth. And so, as living creatures, the Gentiles even were included with the Jews as heirs of this covenant. This was before the the distinction was made between Jews and Gentiles. Although the knowledge of this covenant with Noah was lost to the Gentiles over time. It simply isn't clear whether or not the Apostle Paul includes this particular covenant, the covenant with Noah, among the covenants of promise that he mentions in Ephesians 2, but most likely not. More than likely, the Apostle is referring to the following covenants in the Bible, beginning with Abraham. And why do I say that? Well, because it's particularly in these covenants, beginning with Abraham, and then the God's covenant with Israel, and then God's covenant with David, it's particularly in these covenants that the promise of the Messiah and his kingdom is developed. That promise which was first given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15. That first promise of the gospel was that the seed or offspring of the woman would be at war against and ultimately gain victory over the devil and his seed. Here, in this promise, and in later promises as well, the term seed has actually a double meaning. Like our English word fish, the Hebrew word for seed can refer to both to to one and to many. You know the, the Dr. Zeus Line one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Well, maybe the Hebrew kids, they had to learn something like one seed, two seed, red seed, blue seed, or something. Not only does the Hebrew word for seed or offspring have this double meaning, it can mean one one seed or two seed or more seed, But as God revealed his plan of redemption over time, he intentionally made use of this double meaning. 
And so sometimes the term refers to multiple people, like the descendants of Abraham that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Your seed will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But at other times it refers to a single individual like Isaac or later on Solomon. Isaac was the seed of of Abraham as well. And so was Solomon. Solomon was also the seed of David. And sometimes in the Bible, this word seed refers to both, ultimately to Jesus Christ and to those in union with him by true faith. Well, the Apostle Paul picks up on this, this double meaning of the word seed, this intentional double meaning, when he says in Galatians 3 verse 16, if you look at Galatians verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And, he, and then the Apostle Paul writes, and it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And then a little bit later in verse 29, he writes, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Here he recognizes that offspring can also refer to many. And so the same conclusion can be made about the seed of the woman. Ultimately, the promise refers to Christ and in him to believers. Well, I've, I've explained this to set us up so that now we can briefly see how the Bible unfolds this promise about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the series of gracious covenants that he made prior to Christ's coming into the world. So here we're, we're, we're going to switch tracks. So first, after God made that covenant to preserve the, world, the earth from destruction after the flood with Noah and the world, after that covenant, God made a special covenant with Abraham. And this was many generations later, after the flood. And once again, the human race had descended into gross godlessness. They'd even banded together to build a great tower in defiance of God. Although God intervened and frustrated those plans. That's the Tower of Babel. Well, in this context, the chapter after the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram out from among a family of idol worshippers. And then he made a series of promises to him that he later confirmed with a solemn oath, a covenant, and a visible sign, circumcision. And on this basis, the basis of these promises and this covenant, he called Abram and his household to serve him in faith and faithfulness. We saw last week that this, is, this corresponds to the meaning, ultimately, of, of baptism in the New Testament. Well, this was God's covenant with Abraham, and at the heart of it was God's promise not simply to be God to his offspring and to give him land, but at the heart of 
this covenant with Abraham was God's promise of the Christ, the Messiah, to come. This was expressed most clearly in those words in Genesis 22, verse 18. There God said to Abraham, Your offspring, and here the word offspring is clearly in the singular, Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You hear how that echoes the promise of Genesis 3.15. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring offspring shall all the nations of the earth, earth be blessed. So that's God's covenant with Abraham. And then some 400 years later, the descendants of Abraham have found themselves in slavery in Egypt. We read in Exodus 2, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The rest of the book of Exodus tells us how God raised up Moses as a savior and a mediator for the people. In this way, foreshadowing Christ. It tells us how God rescued this people and then how he made a covenant with them at the foot of Mount Sinai. This was God's covenant with Israel through Moses, what we might call either the Mosaic Covenant, some people call it the Mosaic Covenant, others call it the Sinai Covenant. And at the heart of this covenant is not even the law. The goal of this covenant is not even obedience. As we read in uh, Romans 10, verse 4, the end or goal of the law was Christ. And faith in Christ. The heart of this covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai was the message that what the people ultimately needed was not merely salvation from physical slavery in Egypt, but comprehensive salvation from the spiritual slavery of sin. They needed a Savior like Moses and a salvation like the Exodus. And yet, a Savior and a salvation far greater. Moses was not the ultimate seed of the woman of Abraham. And this is underlined once more in the next covenant of promise, God's covenant with David and his offspring. The historical occasion for this covenant with David was David's proposal to build a house for the Lord a temple to replace the tabernacle. You remember how David said, I want to build you a house, Lord. And God said, no, but I will build you a house. And again, God is using a a word with a double meaning because what God meant was not that he wanted to build David a temple, but that he wanted to build David a royal dynasty, a household, a succession of kings, that belonged to David's line. So this is what God promises to David, and then God gives this promise a special covenantal form. He swears an oath that he will cause David's line to endure forever. 
He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was God's covenant with David. Psalm 89, which we, the song which we began the service with, calls this, this promise and this oath to David God's covenant with David. And even more clearly than the previous covenants that we've considered, this one with David, it reveals that God's way of salvation centers ultimately on one individual in particular. That is, a Messiah, the anointed son of David, who is the offspring of Abraham and the seed of the woman. You see how beginning all the way back in Genesis 3.15, then moving into God's covenant with Abraham and then to God's covenant with Israel and now God's covenant with David, that promise has been becoming more clear what it is what it is referring to now probably these three historic covenants from Israel's past first with Abraham next to Israel then David these are probably what Paul had in mind in Ephesians 2 verse 12 when he referred to Israel's covenants of promise and similarly in Romans 9 verse 4 which say which says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the covenants, the giving of the law, the promises, the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah. These three covenants, the covenant with Abram, Israel, and with David, these three historic covenants of the Old Testament develop the promise of salvation through one mediator, Jesus Christ the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the greater than Moses, and the son of David. Well, there's one more historical covenant in the Bible which follows these three. And this covenant was promised by the prophets toward the end of the Old Testament, but it didn't actually come to fulfillment historically until Christ came to fulfill all of those previous covenants. This covenant, the, the, the prophets called a new covenant, a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant. We can also call it the covenant of fulfillment. This brings us then to our second point, the covenant of fulfillment. key thing to understand about the covenant of fulfillment is that it involves the fulfillment of all God's promises in and through Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul has written, all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And not only the promises, but also the patterns and the pictures that God instituted in the Old Testament as it refers to in in Lord's Day 6, question and answer 19. The promises, patterns, and pictures that God instituted in the Old Testament, they are all fulfilled in and through Christ, our mediator. For example, the temple. That was a picture and a pattern 
the sacrifices, these two, the ceremonies, the exodus, the kingdom, and the covenants. And whole books have been written on these themes that trace these themes from the beginning of the Bible to the end, showing how they're all fulfilled in Christ. All of these find their fulfillment in Christ. And so we as Christians then relate to them through Christ. For example, we are, as the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit because Christ, first of all, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, we belong to the new covenant because Christ, first of all, established that new covenant by his blood. Everything in the Old Testament relates to New Testament Christians, not directly or immediately, but through Christ, our mediator. And so when we read the Old Testament, we have to be careful not to just jump from what God says about the Old Testament people of God and say, well, that's, that applies to me directly. No, we have to see how does that relate to Christ so that we can see how we relate to it, to the teaching of the Old Testament. Let me put it strongly. Apart from Christ, the Old Testament has nothing to do with us as the church, at least as Gentiles. But in Christ, the Old Testament has everything to do with us. Everything to do with our Savior and salvation. And so the Old Testament is a rich source of instruction for Christians. And comfort. And encouragement. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 verse 12 and 13? That apart from Christ, we were without hope and without God in the world. But now in union with Christ and by the blood of Christ, we have been brought near, reconciled to God and joined to his holy people. So then the apostle writes, in Christ, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Through faith in the one gospel, You belong to the one people of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And together, we are members of Christ and heirs of salvation through Him. Well, this is what many theologians in the Reformed tradition have called the doctrine or teaching of God's eternal covenant of grace in Christ. Eternal, they've called it, because it's rooted in God's electing love. From eternity. And also because it transcends all of the historical covenants by which it was revealed over time. It's not limited to any single one of them, but runs as a golden thread through all of them. More dimly in the Old Testament, and but with brilliant clarity in the New Testament. So if you want to picture it, if I had a if I had a, a blackboard or a whiteboard, you could this is what I do for my catechism students. I draw circles for each of the covenants that we talked about in our first point, God's covenant with um, Noah, Abraham, Israel, and David, and then the new covenant with the cross. I draw a cross. That means the fulfillment through Christ. 
So those are the covenants, and then I draw kind of a line over top of these covenants, and that's God's eternal covenant of grace that that runs through all of those historical covenants and, and overarches them, bearing one united testimony to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ by grace alone. So that's why the, the Reformed theologians have referred to a covenant of grace. And also because it's, or why they've, sorry, why they've referred to it as eternal, but they've also referred to it as a covenant of grace because it's not of works, but of free and undeserved mercy and favor. Now there's a variety of ways in how this doctrine has been expressed by different individual theologians and even churches. And yet there is a unity within, under the Reformed umbrella, so to speak, at the doctrine's core. Because all are agreed, all Reformed folks are agreed that there is now, always has been, and ever shall be only one mediator between God and man. That is Jesus Christ. And there's one way of salvation through faith in Him. Not by grace in the New Testament and by works in the Old, but it was always and ever only by grace. And so also only one people of God throughout the ages. Not simply Israel of old, which has one set of promises and the church, which has a different set of promises, but no, one people with one set of promises ultimately referring to Christ. And this is important for understanding also the background to why the Reformed have baptized also the children of believers, just as the children of believers were circumcised under the old covenants. Well, brothers and sisters, I began this sermon by asking you to consider whether the Bible is one book or many. And I explained that the answer is not about either or, but both and. This is often where Baptists and Reformed folks talk past each other because the Baptists will talk about the many covenants and the Reformed will talk about the one covenant. But the Bible speaks of both. And I pray that this sermon has helped you to see that more clearly as this is reflected in the unity and diversity of God's covenants. I pray that you've been strengthened in your conviction that in all its diversity, the Bible from beginning to end bears witness and is a book about the promise of salvation through our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let us then learn to read the Bible that way as a book about Jesus from beginning to end and then to apply it to our lives in that way as a book about Jesus before it's a book about us. Not merely should we read this book as a collection of stories to teach us lessons about life, about being good people versus being bad people, not simply for morals, good morals, but more. Let's read the Bible as one awesome story about our awesome, glorious Savior and about the salvation that He's accomplished for us 
that he planned and revealed, planned from eternity and revealed through history and most fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ at the cross. Let us read the Bible in this way from beginning to end, that we may grow in the knowledge and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.